It's the Carson McCullough Center's weekly Weave Me. This is the first of three episodes based on an interview with librettist Carrie Scott Wilkerson, composer Robert Chumbley, and baritone singer and opera director Ian Greenlaw, who are currently collaborating on an operatic adaptation of Carson McCullers' novel The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Carrie Scott Wilkerson has taught at Columbus State University since 2009. Dr. Wilkerson has published two books of poetry, five plays, edited an anthology of Georgia poetry, and has written the libretti for three operas, two of which have been produced. His works for the stage have been produced in New York, Atlanta, Los Angeles, and Frankfurt, Germany. He has won the Columbus State University Creative Endeavors Prize, received two writing fellowships from the Lillian E. Smith Center for the Arts, has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize, and is on the summer residency writing faculty in Reinhardt University's MFA program in creative writing. Hailed by critics from the Chicago Tribune, New York Times, and Paris Match, Robert Chumbley is one of the most versatile musicians of our day, equally at home conducting and composing for the musical theater, opera, ballet, and symphony. Mr. Chumbley has served as music director for Atlanta Ballet for five seasons and for Cleveland Opera. He has appeared as guest conductor with the Breckenridge Music Festival, American Repertory Ballet, Norwegian National Opera, the Royal Ballet Orchestra, the Carolina Chamber Symphony, Winston-Salem Symphony, and the Prague Chamber Orchestra, among other groups. Ian Greenlaw's performing career has brought him to center stage of opera companies and orchestras on both sides of the Atlantic as a leading baritone. He has performed a wealth of roles with companies such as the Metropolitan Opera, Lyric Opera of Chicago, Teatro alla Scala, Chicago Opera Theater, and others. As a concert artist, Ian Greenlaw has been a soloist with the New York Philharmonic, the Cleveland Orchestra, the Dallas Symphony, the National Symphony Orchestra, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and others. Dr. Greenlaw performed his debut recital at Carnegie Hall's Weill Concert Hall. He is a vocal instructor at the Interlochen Center for the Arts during its summer vocal arts program and is currently assistant professor of music at Millikan University, where he is the director of Millikan Opera Theater. This segment of the interview has been edited for time and content. Why an opera? Is there something about The Heart is a Lonely Hunter that particularly lends itself to operatic treatment? Um, <clears throat> yes, yeah, certainly. The, the high drama of um, the end of, of, of Singer's life, John Singer's life um, in the story. Um, but more importantly, I think it's the uh, interaction among the characters, the main characters, John Singer, uh, Jake Blunt, Mick, and and Copeland, and, and all these major characters, and the way they react to and with John Singer, um, those kinds of character interactions to me are very operatic and and extremely um, exciting to portray, not just in words but also in music. If I may, I'd like to echo my colleagues. Uh, sentiments that there is something inherently operatic about the text, but for me, it had a more personal arc. 
uh, as you recall, I wrote a series of monologues for the, the McCullough Centennial, and that was an act more of ventriloquism uh, rather than creating uh, it, it was an original text, but I was attempting to to sound like Carson McCullers might have sounded. That was a sort of one, a sort of experimental one-woman show that had music and bits of theater, all as a part of articulating McCullers' interest in the arts and as a way of celebrating her life and uh, the way she looked at the world and indeed her, her lonely heart. After that, there was, uh, I wrote another opera with another composer and I wanted to get back to Carson McCullers and I was looking around for something interesting and I thought perhaps it might be fun uh, to adapt those monologues into a, another one person opera showpiece. Uh, and I remember having a conversation with you about this and it was at that moment that you said, Yes, good idea, but guess what? I was just contacted by uh, this composer, Robert Chumbly, who has a uh, vision, and it had never occurred to me, I must say, to reimagine The Heart is a Lonely Hunter as an opera, only because I had, you know, I was looking at other, in other directions. But uh, my first conversation with Robert, which I, I checked today, it, it turns out, Robert, that was, it was uh, in June of 2018, Hmm. And the project was 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 born there, right? With a conversation first with Nick, and then with you, and so that's how that happened. Couple different things, Nick. Um, it's interesting from from my perspective. I come here uh, sort of wearing two different hats. Uh, one as a as an opera singer performer, uh, and as a director of the Millican Opera uh, Theater. So when I look at this piece, when I first looked at when I first started reading the book. I was looking at um, on the cover art, a beautiful picture of Carson McCullers as a young lady. And I kind of heard her voice when I was reading the uh, narrative, but soon found out that uh, even when she's speaking, when she's speaking about certain characters, they all have the narrative actually reflects the way they're, the way they see their world. This is something that English professors, unlike myself, you probably, there's probably a word for what I'm talking about or a description of that type of narrative. But I loved it because it really shows that each character is so so fully fleshed out, not just in their quotes or what they say, but what the way they think. And and as a somebody who I'm often like looking at what makes a good opera. Um, usually, it's a great play, but sometimes it's a great book. In this case, a great book that has so much of the the material is very much like a like a well written play. The way she writes it, so. Um, and there's so much material to to dig into from a lyric, but also a musical point of view. So uh, that's how I that's how I got interested in this piece. Also, because uh, with new opera, it, it, the way I'm teaching my students, I'm really hoping to really emphasize the creation of opera um, from start to finish. And this is a great way of doing that. The other thing that fascinated me about this idea was the irony of an opera, the largest scaled sonic art form we have, would include two main characters who are deaf and mute and never sing a word. The irony of that just fascinated me and still does as I'm composing it. 
And so, uh, what's the status then? Where, where, where are, uh, where is the opera? Uh, you know, what stage of the process? Compositionally speaking, um, Scott and I are more than halfway through. Um, I would say almost two thirds of the way through it. Uh, Most definitely. Yeah, and it's uh, right now it's in what uh, composers call a short score. Um, which means piano and a few other instruments, because I use orchestral instruments to be the voice of John Singer and the voice of Spiros Andropoulos. So there, there are a couple of extra instruments in the short score. Um, but once that short store score is completed, then I'll orchestrate it, obviously, for a fuller ensemble. Tell me then about uh, where the Millican Theater comes in uh, on this, Ian. What's the plan there? Well, the plan is, uh, like a lot of plans these days, are, are constantly evolving and changing because of the scope of higher education um, that I don't need to go into. We're all very aware of it. Um, right now, uh, the opera has been cast uh, just two weeks ago, and we're starting musical rehearsals. The uh, We have time, though, and time is on our side, thankfully scheduling our, our the premiere of the of the workshop performances for may early may may one at this point um so um there's a lot of work to be done i'm also staging another opera at the same time so this is kind of being being uh, produced at the same time as uh, Purcell's dido and aeneas which is a nice example of a extremely uh, one of the earliest operas in the canon and one of the ones that is still being written so covering the gamut Okay, so yeah, so the first thing will be the workshop performances. Can you explain exactly what that is? What does that mean, the workshop performances? From a composer's point of view, it, it, it's an opportunity for Scott and, and uh, me to see what works musically um, and dramatically and, and what doesn't without the pressure of a full-blown um, stage production. Um, it, it'll be a little bit more intimate in terms of, of its staging uh, capabilities that we'll be able to tell uh, what needs to maybe be cut out um, or where we need to add things, I would say. Right, Scott? Well, I just want to say that I'm particularly interested in, in seeing in real time how uh, the Singer and Antonopoulos moments will work because the, the way we've envisioned it is, of course, that we will have uh, uh, actors who know ASL signing the lyrics I have written to which Robert has set music so that ideally we'll have super titles so that the audience can see what they are singing, saying, and then that will be diffracted through the music uh, coming from the orchestra. So it, it, it truly, I mean, th this is this is operatic in its technical aspects. It's a Gesamtkunstwerk. You know what I mean? It's yeah. a totalizing experience of of this most demanding of art forms, and uh, somehow we've managed to push it uh, a, a, a step further. It's very exciting. I was just going to add that, that the difficulty and why a workshop here is, is really critical is that American Sign Language uh, 
the deaf, they speak very quickly. It, it is um, a very fast form of communication. Uh, but musically, they're going to have to follow the tempo of the, the uh, underpinning uh, orchestration. So they're not going to be able to sign as quickly as the normal uh, conversations among the deaf would be. It'll be challenging for them. Um, and I, I just, we just need to see how that works. And I tell you what, Scott, how about we start with you? Tell us what um, passage you've chosen and why, and then if you would, read it for us. One needn't have uh, read the, the novel to, to understand this, this context, but just to frame it up, uh, Mick puts together a kind of prom party, sort of party for the kids at the vocational school. And she has grand visions about how it might go and it, and it falls apart and for all kinds of reasons some some of it's funny and but there's a there's a a, a kind of prevailing disappointment uh in, in the moments after this party breaks up and doesn't really happen and uh, her her romantic connection with harry whatever that finally must mean didn't quite click and so uh as as in other places in the novel we find mick alone in a reflective moment thinking about all the big things in life. In the quiet, secret night, she was by herself again. It was not late. Yellow squares of light showed in the windows of the houses along the streets. She walked slow with her hands in her pockets and her head to one side. For a long time, she walked without noticing the direction. Then the houses were far apart from each other, and there were yards with big trees in them and black shrubbery. She looked around and saw she was near this house that she had gone to so many times in the summer. Her feet had just taken her here without her knowing. When she came to the house, she waited to be sure no person could see, and she went through the side yard. The radio was on as usual. For a second, she stood by the window and watched the people inside. The bald-headed man and the gray-haired lady were playing cards at the table. Mick sat on the ground. This was a very fine and secret place. Close around were thick cedars so that she was completely hidden by herself. The radio was no good tonight. Somebody sang popular songs that all ended in the same way. It was like she was empty. She reached in her pocket and felt around with her fingers. There were raisins and a buckeye and a string of beads, one cigarette with matches. She lighted the cigarette and put her arms around her knees. It was like she was so empty there, wasn't even a feeling or thought in her. One program came on after another and all of them were punk. She didn't especially care. She smoked and picked a little bunch of grass blades. After a while, a new announcer started talking. He mentioned Beethoven. She had read in the library about that musician. His name was pronounced with an A and spelled with a double E. He was a German fellow like Mozart. When he was living, he spoke in a foreign language and lived in a foreign place like she wanted to do. The announcer said they were going to play his third symphony. She only halfway listened because she wanted to walk some more and she didn't care much what they played. Then the music started. Mick raised her head and her fist went up to her throat. How did it come? For a minute, the opening balanced from one side to the other, like a walk or a march. 
like God strutting in the night. The outside of her was suddenly froze, and only the first part of the music was hot inside her heart. She could not even hear what sounded after that, but she sat there waiting and froze with her fists tight. After a while, the music came again harder and loud. It didn't have anything to do with God. This was her, Mick Kelly, walking in the daytime and by herself at night, in the hot sun and in the dark, with all the plans and feelings. This music was her, the real plain her. But maybe the last part of the symphony was the music she loved the best. Glad and like the greatest people in the world running and springing in a hard freeway, wonderful music like this was the worst hurt there could be. The whole world was this symphony and there was not enough of her to listen. It was over and she sat very stiff with her arms around her knees. Another program came on the radio and she put her fingers in her ears. The music left only this bad hurt in her and a blankness. She could not remember any of the symphony, not in the last few notes. She tried to remember, but no sound at all came to her. Now that it was over, there was only her heart like a rabbit and this terrible hurt. The radio and the lights in the house were turned off. The night was very dark. Suddenly, Mick began hitting her thigh with her fists. She pounded the same muscle with all of her strength until tears came down her face. But she could not feel this hard enough. The rocks under the bush were sharp. She grabbed a handful of them and began scraping them up and down on the same spot until her hand was bloody. Then she fell back to the ground and lay looking up at the night and fiery hurt in her leg. She felt better. She was limp on the wet grass, and after a while, her breath came slow and easy again. Why hadn't the explorers known, by looking up at the sky, that the world was round? The sky was curved like the inside of a huge glass ball, very dark blue with the sprinkles of bright stars. The night was quiet. There was the smell of warm cedars. She was not trying to think of the music at all when it came back to her. The first part happened in her mind, just as it had been played. She listened in a quiet, slow way and thought the notes out like a problem in geometry so she would remember. She could see the shape of the sounds very clear and she would not forget them. That's an interesting choice of passage for Mick because, uh, because of Mick's fascination with the violin and the Beethoven, some of her signature music throughout the course of the opera is a, a fractured quote from Beethoven's violin concerto. Probably why I chose it, Robert. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, that's fascinating. You know, um, I, I have, I, I call them strokes of genius. I just, I don't know a better way to describe it uh, in McCullers. One to me is um, having John Singer be hearing impaired and to have him be the person that everybody turns to to spill their guts you know to me that was a real stroke of genius and what she does with Mick there I just love it it's just so beautiful she goes and lies in the grass outside of someone's house you know outside the window so she can hear the radio 
I mean, it's just so poignant. Uh, she loves music so much. She feels it so deeply. And her family doesn't even have a radio. Uh, it's just, it's just wonderful, isn't it? And uh, I, I love those scenes. And, and again, stroke of genius. I don't know what else to, to say about it beyond that. And, so. and the, the deaf mute, the principal deaf mute, is named John Singer. Right. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. we, we, yeah. Rob, Robert and I talk a lot about that and what it, how that one fact must blossom through my language for the libretto. And, and, uh, and I can tell you that it, it is present at every moment uh, in Robert's music. So. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carson McCullough Center's weekly We of Me. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more at mccullerscenter.org or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This podcast was brought to you by Columbus State University's Carson McCullough Center for Writers and Musicians and by Columbus State University's Recording Studio. The music you heard during the intro and outro was written by Lilia Uge in honor of Carson McCullough's 100th birthday on February 19th, 2017. I'm Nick Williams, Technical Director for these podcasts, and I hope you have a great day. Carrie Scott Wilkerson's reading from The Heart is a Lonely Hunter is in the Library of America's The Collected Works of Carson McCullers. The music you heard during the reading was Max Brooks' Violin Concerto No. 1 in G minor, performed by the CSU Philharmonic Live in Legacy Hall on September 22, 2019.